0: The Dynamic Deputies Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Steve, it's just the two of us again today and we wanted to start by saying how much we've appreciated the feedback about the previous episode we did as a duo. Hello
1: everyone and yes Russell, the episode 8 scaffolding strategies really seemed to resonate with many of you. We've had loads of people get in touch to tell us about the strategies they've been trying in class. We really do love hearing about how our podcast impacts your practice in school. So remember, you can contact us
0: on Facebook via the Dynamic Depths Facebook group or on Instagram or Twitter at Dynamic Depths. And before we get going, I should also note, Steve, that this is our first episode to be released since our book has come out. It's called Talking Teaching with the Dynamic Deputies, Inspiring CPD for Every Teacher. Now, if you bought a copy, thank you so much. We're really grateful. We've started receiving some lovely feedback from teachers of all backgrounds and experiences, which is really lovely. So thanks so much. Thank you. Now for today's episode, we're picking up on a theme that has crept into many past episodes, a recent blog I wrote, and it is also something we discuss in the new book. That's right, Russ.
1: And that theme is developing emotional literacy. It's something we're both passionate about, but do you want to define what we mean by emotional literacy before we go any further?
0: Well, emotional literacy is about being able to recognise, understand and express your emotions in a way that I suppose is healthy. Emotional literacy is also linked strongly to the idea of empathy and being able to respond appropriately to others' emotional states.
1: Okay, so why is it important we develop emotional literacy in our students?
0: Well, that's a great question, Steve. A key reason why I think it's important is that I think in the modern world, we can have quite an unhealthy and awkward relationship with our emotions. We're so busy charging through life that when trickier emotions surface, and I'm talking about both adults and children here, we tend to either try to fix them or we kind of run away from them. The issue with both of these approaches is that, for me, they often lead to further distress for the individual. This can, of course, have an impact on those around the individual, too. And when we think about the children in our schools who aren't very emotionally literate, many of them struggle to form healthy relationships or to behave in a way that is conducive to good learning.
1: Mm, I hear you. So do you think we get hung up on trying to avoid or fight difficult emotions?
0: Yeah, maybe. All I know is that as humans, we're definitely meant to experience every emotion that there is. Some are clearly less enjoyable than others, and some are a lot less fun. But it seems to me that they're all perfectly normal. And I think this is something we often forget. And our real distress is often not in the original emotion we feel, but in our battle to rid ourselves of it.
1: Yeah, interesting. So a key point for this podcast is that
0: all emotions are okay. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, can I share a quote from our good friend Liz Scott on this topic?
1: Oh, Of course you can. Go for it. I always like hearing from Liz and regular listeners will recognize her name from one of our well-being webinars produced a couple of years ago
0: now. Well, look, Liz compares life to a piece of music and our emotions to the kind of sounds we hear as we listen to it. And she she's written this in a, in a lovely kind of pamphlet she's done for some of the courses that she runs. It goes like this. What if you are designed to experience a vast range of sounds that ultimately contributes to you being human? These sounds are like the different emotions and moods you feel like the instruments in the orchestra. These feelings are all necessary for the full human experience. There's no need to suppress or feel guilty or self judge your feelings. Unresisted feelings pass through in time. The trouble starts when you start to fight or quash a feeling or emotion When you stand in the humanness of welcoming all emotions, that's when you appreciate the uniqueness of the music. You don't need to resist some emotions any more than you need to resist some musical notes over others. When you allow the music to flow through you, you feel freedom. This sense of freedom is very different from the restrictive feeling of trying to control.
1: I love that, Russ. Thank you so much. So, this idea of allowing ourselves to feel different emotions will be a key theme in our approaches today?
0: Yeah, definitely. Emotional literacy is knowing that all emotions are okay, but also that we don't need to treat them too seriously all the time. Yes, our feelings are very real and intense and sometimes extremely overwhelming. But a key point to make is that they're not necessarily telling us anything hugely important about the world outside ourselves. It's good to know that my feelings are useful information about my state of mind in a given moment, rather than necessarily being brilliant information about my life as a whole.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So an example might be that when a child at school is in rage, they think everyone is against them, they hate school, and everything is wrong. Mm -hmm. As adults watching this, we know that they're just feeling an intense emotion and they need time to settle. We all know that they will see things very differently once they can,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah, that is such a good example, isn't it? We've all been in that situation. So our emotions fluctuate all day every day don't they and when these emotions are very very intense we can see the world very differently it affects our thinking so the approaches we're going to discuss will often come back to that idea of settling the mind down so that the child is able to get clarity and calm
1: and before we head into the first strategy Russell I'm going to quote something you said in your recent blog you said this if you look at the grown adults in society who cause so much harm to others it's easy to see people who have never learned to acknowledge and deal with what they're feeling on the inside. Their balls are pent up anger, frustration or anxiety. They're ready to explode at any moment. So this focus on emotional literacy is also about helping children to be responsible members of society.
0: Yeah, definitely. We need to give our kids the very best chance we can of developing emotional literacy so that they can be responsible, safe and caring members of society. Hear, here. OK, so what's strategy number one? Okay, well, strategy number one is not so much a strategy, but a cultural thing. I really wanted to start with the idea that in a school where emotional literacy is going well, it's going to be partly because adults in that school model emotional literacy. That's a really key thing. And I'm actually going to play a clip for our listeners here, which I've never done before, a bit of a podcast within a podcast. I'm going to share a clip for you now from the episode we did with Jazz Ampafar well over a year ago now. And she's talking about the importance of adults being professionally vulnerable and personally authentic. I was drawn to people who could be honest about the fact that in some parts, in some ways, they were also navigating chaos. You know, I'm not saying you go in and go, look, I'm an alcoholic, I watch Netflix all night, and I might have accidentally got involved in some human trafficking on the way to school. (laughs) You two don't need all that information. I'm talking about being professionally vulnerable and personally authentic and Mm. that is not what you get paid for and it's not in teaching standards but it's an intentional choice of how you show up for the humans that are in front of you and seeing them as Mm. more than the numbers we have to put them down as but seeing them as the faces and the names that you know they are. So hearing that back Steve I absolutely love that quote. Jazz there is sort of making us chuckle as she's talking about the importance of adults being authentic and she's sort of joking there that you know we we don't have to tell them everything that's gone on on our way to school and in our home lives but what do you take from that in terms of the importance of adults modeling that kind of authentic emotional literacy
1: Mm. well look we've spoken about it before relationships are so important in terms of building emotional literacy and modeling it how we work with our children how we develop bonds with our children all come into place when we can develop our emotional literacy. And we know, we're not saying wear your heart in your sleeve to the extent that you're going to cry in the corner where you've had an awful lunch experience and you go in the afternoon and you're shattered. But what we want to do is build this trust with the children and we want to show them that we are human as well. We are authentic because children can see through you if you're not. They are the best at identifying a falseness or a fakeness about anything and who knows they might have come from home where they they know these relationships exist where they're fake and therefore we have to be that professional role model for them and how we can develop and how we use our own emotional literacy
0: well that's a really good point because i think as teachers we always hope and think children will be emotionally literate with us or open about their emotions with us Mm. but i don't think we always appreciate quite the level of vulnerability that that requires you know we're asking a lot of children to talk about their emotions in front of us and if they don't trust us and you're quite right to pick up on the fact that some of our children won't always have had trustworthy adults in their lives so for them to now be vulnerable with us that point that jazz says there about being authentic is really really important and we talk about this in our book actually but she believes quite strongly that she was drawn to authentic adults and they made her feel safe and secure. And I think that's a key place to start. If you're trying to create a culture of emotional literacy in your school, relationships are everything. You mentioned that word, relationships, Mm. numerous times. But it's not about you having to be their buddy or you to be the most popular teacher. It's about them just trusting that you are going to be the same you every day. You're going to be that steady person in their lives. So great place to start with, number one, is... Adults must model emotional literacy. They need to be able to say to children, do you know what? You know, I find it a bit tricky sometimes, or I have insecure thoughts about myself sometimes, or Mm. I sometimes feel a bit wobbly about the way I look or about the way I feel. And, you know, you're not going into great depth there, but you're just showing children that you're a real human. And I think that's not a weakness, is it, Steve?
1: No. And we need to think, where will children actually see emotional literacy model to them if they're not seeing it at home we are their next port of call so Mm. there's no harm in doing it at all actually it's amazing practice for children to see it in the here and now at school
0: so let's look at number two and number two again is actually a cultural thing rather than a single strategy but if people are listening to this and thinking how can i really launch this whole school or improve this whole school number two is start Young. Now, we did a wonderful two part podcast, first one with Mm. Graham Andre, and then with Graham Andre and Nick Ponsford talking about gender equality. And if you haven't listened to those, Gray did a documentary called No More Boys and Girls with the BBC where They really looked at some of the gender differences um, that are created by the way we run our schools and society as a whole. But one of the discoveries Gray made during that documentary is that his boys had really underdeveloped emotional literacy and their vocabulary for describing emotions was like tiny. The only emotion, can you remember the only emotion they could really have a describing word for, Steve? Anger. Yeah, it was just anger. Like that was about all they could describe, Um, (laughs) where girls could describe that full array of human emotions. Um, much much more eloquently as well as that he makes the point in the podcast that stereotypes about boys and girls are quite fixed amongst the children by about age six mm. so they've already made their minds up based on the influences of society and school and their peers so we've got to do a lot of this work around emotional literacy and not allowing those gender stereotypes to form really early on and i don't know what your thoughts are about that Stephen. you're also looking at this now as a parent of a two-year-old i believe
1: absolutely and do you know what russ the thing that strikes me is that with technology how it is around us and this free flow of i can just see um on programs the shouty nature in programs and there's a general anger and don't get me wrong i feel like the pandemic has heightened this somewhat but but there's all this going around them and yet we look at our small minds that are growing into these tiny little people and there's never a better opportunity to start so young not just boys boys and girls just let's get it out there let it be known and break down these barriers so early that we can avoid the gender stereotypes and we can we can develop and mold children and support them through developing their emotional literacy and like i said i've got a two-year-old i'm so acutely <laughs> aware of it now mm-hmm. as to how what she's going through as a tiny person who's been born through the pandemic can come through and how we can help model and develop our own emotional literacy.
0: Yeah awesome and what you said about technology is just blow my mind because I hadn't even thought about it until we began this conversation or not in this depth but so much of what our young people watch in terms of like the you know those videos that really popular like the gaming based videos mm-hmm. all the gaming they do these reactions videos are really popular now aren't they yeah. someone opening something yeah. to see a reaction but all of it is about extremes, isn't it? No one logs on to see someone have a mild reaction. They want to see the excitement. So it's either like incredible highs and happiness, or it's like fuming at something and going into a rage (laughs) about something. And I hadn't really thought until you said technology about how a lot of our children have got devices in front of them for a lot of the time from a very young age. And I'm not anti-devices. My daughters have access to devices, but, Unchecked, they're getting an enormous amount of information into their heads about what normal human behaviour is or isn't. Mm. And if they're getting hours and hours a day, and our listeners will relate to this, you know, some of my teachers say, their kids go off for the weekend saying, I'm just going to play on my Xbox PlayStation all weekend. So they're not got that moderation. Now, if they're in that environment where they've got the headset on and everyone's constantly swearing at each other and getting cross and everything's a reaction when you lose the game or they're watching YouTube where they're, they're, they're watching people having those reactions. What sense of like normal human behavior are they getting? And I know, you know, that as a as a child how i learned what appropriate emotional reactions were were for my parents mm. so if they're not watching their parents having healthy normal emotional reactions and they're instead watching random strangers on the internet having really unhealthy human reactions all the time what's that doing to them mentally and it, it's just really made me think about a lot of our children it <laughs> so quick but it's
1: exactly that i mean i've got a 13 year old who loves his xbox loves youtube well, I can see, and um, we discuss it at home a lot, the reactions that he gets when he's playing a computer game come from what you have seen on YouTube and yeah. how you should react because that's what they're seeing. They're watching these people. Like you said, they're watching reaction videos and they're watching people playing the computer games. They're doing it for entertainment. So they're, they're the extremes, like you said, the extremes of happiness, and the extremes of anger. But when children only yeah. see that, then that's obviously what they're going to mimic. Yeah. And do you know what? It reminds me of when I was playing football with year one, <laughs> love playing football with the young children, but, but they see this mm. anger on TV when they can see the goal, they see the, the dive in and they see the, the all round aggression that can come. And I'm not picking on it. I love football, so I'm never going to pick on it, but, but you can see where children pick up these little snippets And they feel like that is the way because they haven't developed their emotional literacy. So couldn't agree more Yeah, Start
0: young while you can. And as a side note, you clearly only play football year one so you can win occasionally. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, you're right. Coming back to the serious point, it is about, you know, those impressionable young minds and, i i feel you can do this without a male in a school so i don't want to be making some big lofty point about men in schools here right but But... when i go down into nursery and reception year one and and i'm doing a lot more of that in my role than i ever used to when i was an assistant head or or still class based and i love it like i Mm. absolutely love and just admire the work our teachers do down in the early years in key stage one right so i'm down there as much as i can be relatively these days but whenever i'm down there both from boys and girls those interactions i'm having us so powerful and important to them as it is to me and I see how I can role model that emotional literacy coming back to point one with those young children and that those for some of those boys that find it hard to express their emotions to see me a gentle caring nurturing male when they might not all have that in their lives I really do believe that's important but it's not just about the role models it's about the imagery we're giving them it's about the conversations we're having about things like technology it's about giving them the words to express those emotions really young and we'll come on to vocabulary later Steve but mm-hmm. I do think yep. sometimes when we see a child in distress and it can be like uh or like a particularly a boy getting angry and that happens in Graham's documentary doesn't it when the boy tries to hit the thing with a <laughs> hammer and he has and and there's a moment where it's quite it is funny to watch on on screen But Graham is this sensitive teacher that sits down with him, calmly kind of co-regulates and he helps that boy to talk through what emotions were going on and the frustration. He gives him the words he needs because Mm. the reason he's having what we would call a tantrum in that kind of, you know, not so nice word, but it's the best I've got in this moment is because he hasn't got the words to express how he really feels in a healthy way. And, you know, Graham's given him that in that documentary and it's really beautiful moment where he just sits, I think, on a haystack just talking to him about about this. So, yeah, we must start young and we have to. That comes hand in hand with the modelling. We've got to show them what healthy emotional vocabulary and talking mm. looks like. Equip
1: them with the tools, isn't it? Equip the children with the tools. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So let's go on more to tools and and approaches and thinking about the way Graham sat with that boy and just listened to him and co-regulated with him. It takes me on to my third thing, Steve, which is actually the power of listening. And we talk a lot about Liz and Stu. I quoted Liz earlier. There are a couple who work in this world of well-being and who we do a chapter in the the book about and they feature on the podcast a few times. So we we, we go on about them a lot because they're great. But they talk about the power of listening for well-being. So when I'm around another adult or a child that's in some sort of emotional distress, whether that's sadness, anger or whatever, a kind of a natural reaction we all kick in to doing, Steve, is to try and fix their problems for them. And I'm just curious from your point of view, when you are in distress or stressed or wound up, how does it feel to you when someone goes about trying to fix you or your emotions or hit you with loads of tips for what you need to do to sort that thing out? What's your reaction to that?
1: You know what, Russ, I think your language you just used then, you said, hit me with these tips. (laughs) It is overwhelming, isn't it? It Mm. can be really... It's time and a place for everything. And, yeah. and I feel if I'm on this cliff where everything's a bit too much, the last thing you want is someone telling you basically you're broken, you can fix it by doing A, B, and C, and then that'll be all right. That'll be the solution mm. to it. So actually, what I know from Selfishly doing CPD with Stu and Liz and the podcast is just slow down, just slow down. And listening is vital. And it's actually something I've actively mm. since, especially since becoming a leader within a school, the way I listen, my reaction, my processing time, and giving other people time to process mm. is so important. And it just brings that slower calm. I've done it with my voice to slow down when talking to children and to be quieter, because then the listening is increased big time and it really does help others deal with their emotions because there's always that danger of just trying to go it's got a bit too much now we're going to burst in we're going to really try and fix this and then we can get on with the day
0: yeah i think that's beautiful steve and i think what you said there about calming everything down and slowing everything down is incredibly powerful and i'm not just talking about with children you no. talked about colleagues or mm. or the parents we serve you know yeah there's something magical that happens when we slow down and we listen and we show that person we genuinely listen and we're not putting on an appearance of listening and just waiting to respond and waiting to chip in and tell them what they need to do. We're hearing them. And and listening doesn't mean agreeing. Right. So you yeah, could come yeah. to me in distress about something. And I know you're just in anxious thinking because the thing you're saying is is wild. Like it's not making sense. You're not rational because your emotions are through the roof. Now, what I have to remember in that moment is what you're feeling is real, right? Mm. So the circumstance might not be quite how I see it, but it feels really real for you and it's causing a really emotional reaction for you. Now, if I try and fix that thing for you or, or debate with you right now about how you're right or wrong, I, I think we can both see how that's going. Yeah. If I dismiss your perspective as silly because I don't agree with it, mm. that's also not going to go well. Mm-hmm. If I don't say a lot, but I show you I'm really listening and I tell you that what you're feeling's okay and that I understand it, it's much more powerful because I give you the space to see it clearly for yourself. And, you know, that's when we talk about that lovely phrase, co-regulation that I used mm, earlier with Graham and yeah. that boy. There's an incredible power we have as human beings in helping others reconnect with their well-being. And coming back to Liz and Stu, when they talk about listening for well-being, it's because they believe that every human being, and I agree with them, has the natural resourcefulness and resilience they need to navigate through tricky stuff. Now, if we see that in the children we serve, We will deal with them. We'll deal with the circumstances and and their emotions in a much more um, healthy way for them. I think so. Instead of going about trying to fix them, we listen for well-being. We allow a a safe space to talk about the way we're feeling. We show genuine empathy, and we we comes back to the authentic self we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I yeah I felt that way too before. I I know. I know what's going on for you right now. And before you know it, we've we've helped that person to reconnect with their natural resilience and their natural resourcefulness, which all kids and all adults have in bags. They just lose sight of it when they're in distress. So I would just say and and uh, there's something I feel like we could do a whole other episode on Steve or, or mm. you know, I really encourage people to look at the chapter in our book on well-being because it talks a bit more about this, but listening is a is a beautiful tool for developing emotional literacy and and when we we're too quick to jump in and and tell children what to think or whether their emotions are right or wrong it we just close down emotional literacy so yeah if we want that to be open we've got we've got to listen
1: and i just add russ yeah that actually when we think about listening again we're quite privileged in a education setting because at home the children or the adults that we're listening to may not have been listened to Mm. effectively in another environment so actually us listening for well-being that could just be the moment that person can hear themselves as well yeah and from that you can develop a resilience within yourself and an understanding of what's going on yourself as well as with the person in the room
0: yeah really nice thank you all right, Steve, so that takes me on to number four, which, again, mm. it leads on nicely. I've talked about this in the blog that I wrote recently, about five-point scales, which are often an approach used for children with Uh, special educational needs but I really feel they're one of those inclusive practices that benefit all learners Um, some might need something more bespoke but we encourage our teachers to do this as a PSHE activity for all children in the September each year anyway but basically what a five-point scale is 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 very simple I mean they they can look slightly different in our school the way they look is it's a table basically and down the left-hand side are the numbers one to five and we use one to represent the very calmest of emotional states and five to be that very you know heightened state whether that be anger or sadness or or whatever that looks like for the individual we then encourage the children to draw or pick if they're doing it on a Chromebook, an emoji that represents those five things for them. And that in itself is interesting because you get kids that actually number five is an anger face with fire coming out of their head Mm. for another child. That's tears because actually Mm. when they're at that state, what that means is sadness, not anger. And then the next column along from that, so we've got the numbers, the emojis, the next column along from that might be uh, my body clues. So, getting children to tune into the fact that they normally have a kind of a physical response to emotions, then it's quite healthy to spot those. And this is something often we don't discover into our, 20s 30s 40s steve before me. Yeah. oh right every time i get a tightness in my chest what's what's going on for me i've never noticed i've been walking around with that like like it's normal so we get children to tune into that and and again that takes some adult modeling i remember doing this with year six and saying so actually that is a physical symptom for me of anxiety i get this like chest down to tummy i get the kind of nervous butterflies but then i get this tension in my chest and then another kid goes oh all right I've realized I twiddle my hair when I'm nervous or another one goes oh I chew on my fingers or someone else goes oh I, I wiggle and actually that's really healthy for two reasons one you're getting the kids to tune into those physical responses but you're getting empathy between them because they're kind of turning and they're like oh Harry twiddles his hair when he's anxious like I can be a bit more understanding about that now so that's the next column and then the next column along is just and I, I would say to people approach this column tentatively okay? OK, because it's not about one strategy for every situation, but it's in that column is, is what can I do? You know, and 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 I encourage teachers to have a really healthy conversation with children about As you're recognizing those signs that you're fluctuating up and down, this isn't a to do list that will work every time that you follow in this particular order. But are there certain things you know really help you as an individual? You know, is it taking some deep breaths? Is it talking to somebody? Is it writing my feelings down? Is it getting out for some exercise at play? Is it eating something? So, we have a bit of a discussion then children kind of populate this column with those things that they might be able to do. And it's about preventing that escalation up to five, because clearly once we get to five, it's tricky. You know, you're talking emergency plans for some kids there in terms of what we're yeah. doing. But for most of us, there are things we can do before it gets that far. And, you know, even as an adult, I know that I get up to five sometimes and I, I, I know there, there was action I could have taken all and by action, that's sometimes inaction, you know, maybe I needed rest, maybe I needed to <laughs> yes. stop, but I've allowed that to build up and up and up. So a five point scale is simply a resource that we can make with all children. It is great for learners with additional needs or those who particularly struggle to identify their emotions, have found it quite helpful with autistic children. Um, but then every autistic child is unique, so it might not work brilliantly for all autistic children, but just in terms of queuing into those emotions and spotting what, what they're telling us and and how we can express that in a healthy way i've had quite a bit of success or we've had quite a bit of success at school using that with some children like i say works better for some learners than others it's just another tool in your your toolkit really as a school
1: awesome love that and i know that in my year six class we actually trialed and piloted everyone having a simple five point scale on their table laminated copy white pen, rubber and then between the coming in the morning, they would just do a tick or a dot, however they wanted to, they would let you know where they were on the scale. And as myself or the supporting adult walks around the class, you could just have a look and just think, okay. But it was also an awareness of something may have happened at home, mm. a pet may have died in the morning. There's any kind of event that may p- regulate that child on a different part of the scale as to where you would normally expect them to be when they come in from school, uh, from home, from school, whether it be at break time or lunch time, or during a lesson as well. There's just this opportunity that a child who may be quieter and may not recognise the physical Mm. symptoms of our emotions can let you know. Like you said, we do it all the time in the hub. Um, Five-point scales are really important for the children who may not be able to verbalise it effectively or may not understand why they're displaying physical symptoms like they are, so... They're brilliant tool, and I'd really encourage people to, to to trial them, with a caveat um, that we don't boss the children around by using them, <laughs> but but likewise we use them effectively for the child, not to the child.
0: Brilliant. I was about to give two caveats and you've nailed one of them, Steve. You're so right because when we first used it, I, I occasionally see an adult, maybe a teaching assistant or someone sort of grab the chart in front of the child <laughs> say, don't forget it, you should be, and it's like, whoa, 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 no. This is about <laughs> that child's autonomy and mm. um, and kind of agency over their own lives rather than something we do to them. So you're spot on about that. We must we must talk with our support staff if we do this in our class. So this is how it can be used. This is for the learner and the second caveat that I'd say Steve is just because I love what you said about them just like letting you know where they're at but also having that healthy conversation about the fact that going up and down Is normal as well yeah because you're four or five doesn't actually always mean we need to change or fix anything it might be that what you need to do right now is just let it be Mm. and it and it will it will come back down so yeah i think that's really important all right so that's number five uh number four sorry number five steve is talking about just vocabulary developing emotional vocabulary and you know there's two points that i kind of wanted to touch on here what you might find as you develop emotional literacy as a school is that the first thing is you get kind of shorthands you find yourself using as a school or amongst staff, for example. So when we began doing some work with Liz and Stu, they would use this analogy that we quite liked of red and green glasses. And all that meant it was a really simple shorthand to represent the emotional state you're in at any given moment, right? So there's more than just red and green glasses, but using those two extremes, Mm -hmm. you know, there are days I come into work and for what, ever reason Steve I'm just not seeing the world particularly positively someone can say hello to me and I still feel grumpy I <laughs> everything everything's seen wrong I see the bad in everything and I know that's about my emotion yeah I've, I've
1: met that mystery <laughs> that's
0: about my emotional state it's not that anyone else is doing anything wrong it's just where my thinking is so we call that red red thinking or red red lenses you're wearing your red lenses and then there's that green lens is the opposite end like we're seeing things for what they really are not necessarily rose tinted or anything but just we're seeing it what it is clear settled and when Liz and Stu explain this to us and just the power of our thinking and how it affects our emotional experiences and how it affects how we perceive life staff naturally found themselves starting to say this and and say it to each other. Oh, I've got my red lenses on today. Now, it didn't mean that anyone needed to fix them. They might need to listen for well-being. It was just a way of letting someone know in a healthy way, I'm not quite right today. So if I'm a bit short or not as warm as normal, it's not personal. This is just where I'm at today. And, um, you know, I know some people have used that in conversations with children. I wouldn't say that school-wide at my school, but I- I've used that with children. I've heard staff refer to that terminology with children. I would say vocabulary like that's really helpful helpful or, or metaphors mm-hmm. like that for helping children to to see see how their emotions fluctuate the other one that I wanted to throw open to you Steve was just through the subject of English actually in terms of how much yeah. emotional vocabulary comes out through reading and writing
1: yeah absolutely uh, and this is a way that children relate to characters within a book and that's why the books that we share as a class and as a school are so important because There's nothing better. We'll know it as adults and as children when we read books. We can relate to characters in it. So if we are looking at developing vocabulary, whether whether it's in our writing, whether it's in our reading, and just generally within our curriculum and our English curriculum, then sure, we need somewhere to go to. So exploring character profiles, exploring journeys a character takes are so important, and exploring books for what they are and how they can demonstrate emotional literacy within scenarios is so fundamentally important for a child to to hear because we've got to remember some of our children are not, are not um able to enjoy a book for it is. so if we can model and develop it with the class and with children in small groups and individually then that is so beneficial for a child to actually understand what they are going through and develop the vocabulary that enables them to in turn describe and acknowledge what it is that they're
0: going through yeah and we'll say a bit more about books in a minute because books is yeah. kind of a, a second one on top of this this point about developing vocabulary but I know you described that beautifully the power of how stories can generate scenarios and situations that we can discuss and one thing that I hear teachers Talk about all the time in the teaching writing is show, not tell. And how, yes, there's a place for that straight up emotional vocabulary. So the character was feeling um, distressed, anxious, and so on. And people sometimes use those kind of color scales, don't they, to express the Mm. intensity and having a display like that in your class or in your working wall or something where you've got that range of vocabulary and you're, you're talking, what is the difference between nervous and petrified or distressed? You know, these, these intensities of emotions, that's really good. But on top of that, you've got the show not tell stuff that I was beginning to refer to there of, actually, sometimes we know about a character's emotions, not by the author saying they were distressed, but because they displayed certain Mm behaviours. Now we talked right at the beginning about how we want children to develop empathy as part of their emotional literacy. Well, we can do that through exploring these characters, can't we? And, and actually, what does the fact that they were chewing on their fingernails tell us about where that character's head was at in that particular scene? This is all really healthy, emotional vocabulary. And yes, we're doing it for the writing reason, but it's a bonus that we're we're getting it for the yeah. emotional literacy reason and the, the PSHE-ness of it all. Yeah. But yeah, you're, you're working walls and stuff, Steve. are a great place to get that vocabulary, aren't they?
1: And that's it. We know I've been in so many classrooms and it's great practice to have all this language and vocabulary around the classroom, but... Actually having the time to to explore it and to develop it ourselves, that's how it can really seep into the minds of children and develop.
0: Nice. I love seeing teachers acting out those emotions, you know, in front of children (laughs) because those nuances between a word like anxious or distressed are, are, Mm. are subtle. So having adults that can explain those slight differences to children. Mm-hmm. I always think of the film inside out and how, yeah. you know, it's really a film about it dawning on a child that life isn't black and white. And there's yep. these incredible range of shades uh, of emotion that exists between just those four or five main ones that her brain used to kind of deal with. And I think that's, that's a big deal for a child, at, certainly at mm. primary school and up to upper primary school to get their heads around they're they're realizing life's a bit more complicated and nuanced than they once saw it and emotions are much more complex. But equally, it flows into secondary. When we're hit, having children here in puberty and their emotions are all over the place, yeah.
1: having a, a reference point is so useful. So it really
0: can develop across primary to secondary and beyond yeah brilliant so that's number five develop a vocabulary so maybe have shorthands in your school that you use but also use your English curriculum in particular to really drive okay. uh, emotional vocabulary Steve slight reorder here I'll jump to books which you've touched on there but I do think it's a thing in itself not just in terms of mm. the the English curriculum because we certainly yeah. in our primary school we use books all over the place I know in secondary quite a lot of people now use books in their tutor time and so on but Yep. books as a tool to develop emotional vocabulary, not just in the way I was talking about a minute ago in terms of like, as writers, here's some vocabulary we can pinch, but real scenarios, real um, yep. kind of or fictional, but you know what I mean by real, characters that we can explore in a book, going through stuff. And there's kind of two types of books we were talking about, weren't we, before we hit record. You've got the ones where the book is explicitly designed to talk about emotional literacy. So a couple of examples that spring to mind, you've got the lovely new book by Tom Brassington and Joe Brassington, uh, the Brassington brothers uh, called Bottled. And that is very much a book about emotions, about, you know, why it's important to express our emotions, having healthy spaces to explore emotions. And, and that's brilliant. And in the, in a similar vein, you've got the, the kind of picture books of like the Tom Percivals, the, the bright feelings books, which are very much about, emotions anger frustration making friends and so on and allowing those to be explored and then aside to that you've got the different kinds of books that aren't directly about that stuff Mm. but give you space to talk about that stuff so I don't know if in your career Steve you've what kind of success or experience you've had in those different types of books any books that stand out as children really related to or the discussions you had in class.
1: I can remember even with my year two class reading a book as simply as Giraffes Can't Dance, and then discussing <laughs> Gerald's own journey within his emotions of how he was feeling and why and how he was showing that he was feeling. Those conversations that happy uh, happen early on are really the building blocks. Like we said earlier, start young. And that is getting someone to acknowledge what someone... is showing empathy for a start mm. and acknowledging those emotions. But even doing the journey by Aaron Becker in Year 6. Now, we did that having come back from the pandemic, but actually that spiraled into a discussion of emotions and regulations and stuff of why the girl in the book was feeling like she did at the very beginning and what was surrounding her these external factors that are having an influence on her emotional well-being at that time so it really does show that subtly there are so many books out that they can do this but just like you said like' bottled you can have it in your facebook that does exactly what it needs to as well so a lovely balance, and do you know what this is why the blending of a curriculum full of free-flowing books is so important, yeah. and it just it really enhances the development of the class and the school. Like Russ, I know you read books in assembly, right? So yeah. surely you've picked some there where you've got, got some triggers. For discussion
0: absolutely yeah so we have an assembly curriculum essentially of of it's a two-year rolling curriculum where we'll explore kind of 12 authors over those 12 half terms in the two years but yeah, they absolutely link to, in our case, our values. But that that's things like friendship and excellence and teamwork and so on. So you've picked books or authors that give you that space to explore those themes. And yeah, I think, you know, that's wonderful. And it's wonderful for children to sometimes return to those books. You know, they'll if that curriculum is allowed to run without interruption, our year sixes will have had some of those authors three times before yeah. they end primary school. And I think that's healthy. You know, they come back to some of those classic picture books that explore you know, those themes, those, those important feelings. And, you know, as you were talking about stories and the power of them, it got me thinking that you know, it's hardwired into our evolutionary history storytelling, isn't it? You know, it's like one of the most basic human things to do is to sit around and tell a story like they might've done around a campfire, you know? So when we share a story, there's an incredible communal power in that, in that we're all connected on that one theme and that one, event that's going on. And it's the reason you can be stood there at the end of the day at 310 with tears in your eyes as as you finish the novel <laughs> with the kids, because there's it's it feels so real, you know, the emotions are so real, you're connecting yeah. to some really deep human stuff there. So your story curriculum, which goes beyond your English curriculum, that's your, yeah. I mean, since we've bought in more of a reading instruction curriculum, okay, that's part of English, but that's given us scope to put in so many more books that we weren't in our maiden sort of English writing curriculum then the story time at the end of the day and so on. So yeah, books are incredibly powerful. And Steve, that takes me nicely on to strategy seven, which is actually, is a, it's not so much strategy, but it's a curriculum area, which is your PSHE curriculum. Yes. And books are brilliant within that, but they're not the only thing we can use. Now, just the main point we wanted to make about the PSHE curriculum is it is a safe space within which to talk directly about this stuff. And we did an episode a good year and a half or so ago. So lots of you won't have necessarily heard it if you've, you've started listening in recent months uh, with a wonderful lady called Lucy Markovich. is a PSHE specialist. So do go back and have a, a listen if you're interested. But what she talks about in that episode is how PSHE gives us a lovely space to distance tricky issues and emotions from children in in the stimuli that we use so instead of being like so now we're going to talk about bullying and this is the issue we've got in this class which (laughs) whoa you know straight away far too intense she talks about the power of stories and books but she also talks about puppets she talks about films she talks about different characters made up scenarios and uh yeah i know steve you've said over the years your attitude to PSHE has changed like you see it so much more valuable now than you used to.
1: Yeah absolutely that because uh, I can remember uh, NQT years to my uh, ECT and beyond like early years uh, PSHE was a bit of a bolter mm. and if, if you missed it uh, because you'd have a 20 minute circle time or a PSHE mm. assembly in class then it didn't always feel like the end of the world but actually Developing my own practice, looking back, I feel kind of guilty that that was the the way it was um, in my early years because I should have given it the time. And when you can know now what we know about emotional literacy and how they're so huge building blocks mm. for children Then you think oh why did we not give that the time it deserved and actually not what the subject deserved but what the children deserved themselves really can
0: I ask you a question Steve did you find because this is a reflection like I have some of that same guilt like about maybe not having given some of that stuff the time that it deserved and I know part of that is the pressures upon me and the curriculum demands and so on I'm sure that's still the case for teaching um staff out there but One thing that I did used to notice when I was full-time class-based was a real correlation between when I had neglected time for PSHE, both in terms of the as a proper curriculum area and then also those impromptu PSHE conversations you spread across your week. When I neglected that, I really did see the teamwork, the emotional literacy, et cetera, go downhill in my class. Like I, yeah. I, I realised, oh, now I need to do a circle time, but I was doing it reactively rather than proactively. Was that just me or did you used to spot that sometimes? No,
1: you're totally spot on. It just showed the the impact it could have and that when it was neglected, you're right, uh, it was kind of a missing cog to the machine that mm. was running within the class. And hey, I even remember, uh, sure, it was a bit reactive because Ofsted were in, I was just about to go into a lesson. I spent all break time prepping. It it was beautiful. Everything was ready. (laughs) The children lined up the door. Two of the girls had a massive falling out. Huge spat. And I thought, do you know what? I can't let this just go without being uh, unsaid. Inspectors at the door, they've come in. Just as I've got the children's carpet to resolve it. Things Ah, panic bells in my head. But actually, in sitting down and having the conversation there and discussing, not even between the girls, it was, the whole class sat around and we all fed into a short, it was no longer than 10, 15 minutes um, of time, but that's when we could give time to these kinds of areas, but it was necessary for us to move forward and to help and support the girls who just had a spat, but weren't sure how they were dealing with um, issues beyond just the friendship as well. And it kind of, Built on what we had subtly learned in PSHE, without being so forthright, that actually just taking that time and acknowledging it, and discussing, and, and not trying to fix, not at all. We weren't fixing yeah. the issue. We were just providing insights they could hear themselves, and then it flowed a lot nicer. But you think there was opportunity there to to be real panic alarms and just sit there, tell them. I'll sit her at the door. You've got to do this. You've got to say sorry to each other, move on. But
0: it couldn't be like that at that moment. That's beautiful. I think in, in our book, sorry, I know it sounds like I keep plugging the book, but it's because it's, <laughs> it's fresh in my mind and we've been looking at it a lot in, in the recent months. You do refer, Steve, to how your class felt like a little family to you. And the way you've described that was like a family. Like if, if my daughters have a massive tizzy, sometimes we'll let it slide, but sometimes it's like, we need to sit down and talk about this. This isn't right. So actually in the same way that I would do that in my own home, I would do that in my classroom, certainly as a primary teacher, I'm sure in the, there are times where we do need to park it and say, actually it's learning time now. We'll come back to that later. But you know, we are a family in, in, a, in a school environment, uh, it does feel like that. And we do have to have that professional, w- w- like trust and respect for each other. So mm. I think that's really, that's really beautiful. But yeah, if we, if we neglect the proactive, we'll only be doing the reactive yeah. stuff with PSHE. Yeah. So the making those time for those little chats. And, you know, I find it's in the littlest things. It's kind of just as they're about to go out for lunch, reminding them, be kind to each other today, or, you know, it's your day on the whatever equipment today remember this is how we share you know it's those little reminders that you just plant those little seeds of goodness
1: <laughs> and do you know what ross you're so right because i remember having a conversation slt and saying why does it feel like we're just putting fires out mm. and it was that we were being reactive instead of proactive in our vocabulary in our language like you said just a quick reminder be kind out there today yeah uh it can go so far it can just be that little moment they need oh yeah yeah. And it's not to say that they won't be kind but it's just a again an acknowledgement of what you can be.
0: It's about setting out your store and your standards as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to the point about the curriculum itself, you know, if you're still mapping out your PSHE curriculum or deciding how it's going to look, or maybe you're using a scheme, hopefully within that you've built in these ways of the learning being a bit distance from the children themselves. So it's not always about them, you know. And we've we've found this has worked really well in some of the units we've had where we have Every every unit for each year group has had a stimulus, whether that be a book, whether that be you know, we link it to our values. So we've got a whole thing coming up on teamwork next half term and and Becky, my assistant head, has planned that around successful teams that exist out there, you know, whether that be from sports or whatever else. And that distances it a bit because it allows children to look at another team that's not our class. What were the features of that team that were successful? What enabled them to uh, achieve and collaborate? Okay, now let's bring that back to us. What does that look like for us in our class and our school? So yeah, I think distancing things initially Allows that safe space to talk about emotions. Awesome. So, Steve, coming on to our final point is if you're really trying to develop emotional literacy, and actually, you uh, referred to this nicely with your example with the two girls, how we respond to mistakes and real events as learning points is really key. So, my last thing is. Using mistakes and real events as learning points is really, really key. Now, there's a bit of a caveat to this, Steve. So before I go into the caveat, just to say what I mean by this is in a school environment, however good our curriculum, however good behavior is, things are going to go wrong sometimes, right? Someone's going to dysregulate or there will be a falling out between two friends in the way you described, or, you know, there will be some tension between a pupil and and another pupil or a teacher, whatever. Things can go a bit wrong. But what's really powerful for me is what comes after that? Like, how is that made better? How do we move forward from that particular event? And this isn't about making a bigger deal out of things than it needs to be. Sometimes we're moved on within 10 seconds and kids forget things super quick, and in which case, fine. But I'm talking about where things have perhaps gone that bit, bit more wrong, and they do need addressing in a bit more of a way do you find the time to address that is always right there in the moment, or do you sometimes feel there's a bit of time needed?
1: I think circumstances can dictate in that one, but I, I mean, I
0: know what I like to do and I like to do it
1: in the moment if, if at all possible, but take each person as they come and each circumstance as it comes. But yeah, sure. I think if it can be dealt with and we can learn from it in the immediate, let's try and do that because like we always say every day's a new day etc then you don't want to be lingering over a mistake Mm. into a learning point you kind of want to resolve where you can but i think one thing i I just want to say this comes back to that authenticity as well doesn't it um (laughs) knowing that we're all human we all make mistakes we can learn from them it comes all the way back to jazz's professionally vulnerable and personally authentic
0: uh, description yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you're right that it is about relationships and you know I can't give a blanket rule for how long you leave it between an event going wrong and, and when you talk about it because you're, you're quite right Steve you have to read the situation and you know for one child actually that needs dealing with right now and for someone else I know it's going to cause them to dysregulate again just yeah, as they're yeah. calming down to deal with that right now so it is about those authentic relationships and, and reading the room reading the child in front of you in terms of knowing when we can talk about those emotions in a healthy, safe way. And I really do like uh, Gareth Morwood talked about how the time to learn is when everybody's calm and not when people are in distress. And yeah. I've heard this phrase used before. We don't learn to swim while we're drowning, you know, and quite often if, if someone's really dysregulated, so I'm talking about an extreme here now, I think we all know that that child is not going to be in a place to, to work through the tricky emotions of that event straight away and and we do have to be a bit careful because sometimes they can appear like they're feeling calm and then we just escalate it back up again by trying to tackle it there and then I guess because in my job I do come across some of those children that dysregulate at the extreme so I appreciate this isn't advice for every single child but I found myself using this phrase um, with a few key learners over the last couple of years. And it's this idea of a fire. You know, I've came up with this when working with a lad who was wonderful, but if something went wrong, it's like the, the whole world's gone wrong now. Like the rest of my day's gone wrong. Like I'm throwing it all away. And I just said to him one day, I don't know where it came from. I just said, look, if my house was on fire, but like just a small fire in one little room, what would you get me to do? And he's like, well, you'd have to put the fire out. And I was like, okay, well, what you're doing is you're setting fire to the whole house. So what you're doing is taking that fire and spreading it into every room. You're basically saying that one bit's gone wrong, so the whole thing needs to burn down. And what I'm saying to you is we can put that fire out, we can repair the damage, and we can still have a great day. And that is a really big learning point for some of our learners to get their heads around Coming full circle, to that point about reaction videos and yeah. you yeah. know gaming videos where you throw your controller across the room and storm <laughs> out your bedroom. Actually, real life isn't like that. Real life, you have to swallow your mistakes, you have to absorb the mistakes, and and you have to address what's gone wrong and move on from it. And, you know, I could only have that quite challenging conversation with that young man because of that authentic Mm, caring relationship and because he knew that that came from a place of me really wanting the best for him. But I've now found myself repeating that same conversation (laughs) with three or four learners over the couple of years since working with him. So I think children to be able to have that healthy space to talk about their emotions is really important and to reflect on mistakes and and situations or something that went wrong for them and it's not always that extreme dysregulation it might be I, I do quite a bit of mentoring and sometimes that's with learners who you know, then they're, they're not a behavior problem. They've just got a few emotional difficulties. They feel life very intensely. And something in their day might have gone a bit wrong and they've told me it's upset them. And just us being able to say, okay, so what's going on there? Let's just talk that through in that really calm, healthy way, is enough for them to be able to learn from that mistake. And then when it comes or that or not even a mistake, but that issue or that event. And know that when that comes around next time, I've got I've got the tools I need. But yeah. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on on mistakes, Steve, and how we use those in the classroom. Because I'm also talking about this as a deputy head that does a lot of pastoral work and takes kids for chats. The busy everyday teacher doesn't always have time for those chats. But in your classroom, how might that look?
1: As a classroom teacher, I was always, we learn by making mistakes. We always say, a football analogy is that in defeat, you learn the most about your performances and how you can get better. So, So having a classroom where mistakes are, uh, accepted uh everyone acknowledges that you'll have a mistake uh, mistakes as plurals mm. you shouldn't be afraid to make a mistake if you're you always want to be on the edge and in that zone of even when you're doing work in books so i can think of children reluctant writers because they don't want to make a mistake but if it that can then lead to dysregulation because children avoid wanting to do it but if you're of a culture where sure mistakes are fine they can be useful to us in developing ourselves as a person as our, in, in our education as well then hey we've just got to be accepting and having children that know that other children will make mistakes as well is pretty important I mean I've worked with some children in my class that can dysregulate to the highest degree and actually children are really empathetic to it as well
0: mm. awesome well steve it's been great chatting through some different approaches and cultural aspects of how we can develop emotional literacy in our schools please do reach out to us if you've enjoyed this episode steve we've now surpassed way past now one all all-time listens for our podcast and that really does feel amazing doesn't it
1: that is incredible thank you so much and we want to thank everyone who listens regularly and ask that please take a moment to leave a nice review or a five-star rating on whatever podcast writer you use. It really does help our podcast to gain new listeners when you do that thank you
0: yes please so if you do feel inclined please do treat yourself to a copy of our new book talking teaching with the dynamic deputies which we're really proud of and we're starting to get some nice reviews for now i'm going to leave our listener steve with one more quote from liz because i think it's it's lovely it's this our emotions are a bit like the weather sometimes our emotions are wild and unsettled sometimes they're warm and sunny Like the weather, our emotions naturally shift and change. They are not designed to hang around. When you understand your moods are like the weather, then you wait for the storm to pass by. The more you become curious about these passing thought storms, the less debilitating they are. Thank you, everybody, and we hope you have a fantastic week ahead. The Dynamic Deputies. (laughs)